Submitted. Thank you very much. We'll hear argument next in number 9333, Lamp, Pleva, et al. versus Gilbertson. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents two closely related questions. First, should federal securities fraud claims under Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 be governed by a single federal statute of limitations or by the law of the forum state on a case-by-case basis? Second, should the federal rule be the one-year, three-year standard established by Congress for the comparable federal securities fraud remedies at the same time that it created Section 10B or by a limitations period enacted, extracted from some other federal law passed decades later? The respondents are Oregon residents who brought actions under Section 10B and Rule 10B-5 to recover losses they had sustained on limited partnership tax shelter investments. Petitioner is a New Jersey law firm that was involved in preparing some of the offering materials. Oregon's two-year fraud statute of limitations was applied by both courts below in adjudicating petitioner's summary judgment motion. The district court granted the motion. The Ninth Circuit reversed, holding that issues of fact remained as to when the alleged fraud was discovered. There is no dispute, however, that if the Section 10B claims against petitioner, that the 10B claims against petitioner would have to be dismissed if the one-year, three-year limitations period were to be applied. I will focus today on three principal contentions. First, the wasteful and debilitating consequences of borrowing state limitations periods on federal policies, the federal civil justice system, and federal litigants make it essential that a uniform federal standard be adopted. Second, the one-year, three-year limitation period repeatedly adopted by Congress when it enacted the 1933 and the 1934 Securities Acts, including Section 10B, is the only choice for Section 10B that is compelled both as a matter of legislative intent and as the standard most compatible with the federal remedy and the federal policies underlying that remedy. This solution has been endorsed with near unanimity by the courts, commentators, and the bar. Third, neither the five-year limitations period adopted by Congress in 1988 for insider trading nor the four-year limitations period adopted in 1979 for land sales are rational, workable, or jurisprudentially acceptable alternatives. Turning first to the operation and effect of the system that prevails in many of the circuits today, that system, with the exception of the three circuits, the second, seventh, and third circuit, is to apply the law of the forum state. The district court applies the fraud statute of limitations, the blue sky statute of limitations, the contract statute of limitations, the personal injury statute of limitations, or some catch-all statute of limitations depending upon the particular facts of the particular case and the particular forum in which the case is brought. Thus, there are 50, 100, 150, and more potential statutes of limitations to apply at the outset in a 10b-5 case. State statutes of limitations for fraud or blue sky may vary from as, as short as one to as many as 10 years. And these complications are exacerbated because then the district courts apply different and numerous rules of tolling 
with respect to when the statute of limitations has begun to run. Furthermore, as respondents point out and concede in their brief, state statutes of limitations with respect to fraud or blue sky are constantly changing. This complicates the district court jobs further. Mr. Olson, these are problems that always exist whenever you borrow state statutes of limitation. And what we've been doing it for a couple hundred years. Uh, I, I think what you're saying is that it's always better to uh, make up or, or pick a federal statute of limitations. Is that always true? Well, it may, it may be, from that standpoint, generally preferable to pick a federal uniform statute of limitations for a federally created right. But this, the securities laws under Section 10B, are at the far end of the spectrum because there must be an interstate nexus to begin with. That was not the, that, that's not the case in many of the statute of limitations this Court has adjudicated in the last few years. There must be an interstate nexus. There are frequently many plaintiffs and many defendants from many different states. There is a federal source to turn to in this case. Have you read the law of conflict of laws recently? I mean, from, from, from the standpoint of a, of a lawyer uh, figuring out what substantive law is going to govern his case, I don't know that securities law is any more difficult than any other field for determining what substantive law the particular court is going to apply. Well, the commentators and the courts that have struggled with this, one, one judge from the Seventh Circuit said this is as enervating as it can possibly be in the federal securities field. The ABA Special Committee on Federal Securities Law studied this and said that this is a disaster. There is chaos. There is forum shopping. Uh, there is litigation year after year of, of litigation after litigation. Those same choice of law rules that the court just that you just referred to, Justice Scalia, exacerbated even further. In New York, for example, the district court in New York will either apply the rule of New York if it's a New York resident bringing the action, or the law of New Jersey if it's a New Jersey resident bringing the action. The Second Circuit in the Series Partners case described one federal securities case in which 26 different statute of limitations were applied and another case in which 34 different statute of limitations were applied. Even the plaintiffs concede that there is forum shopping uh, in this area. Um, the plaintiffs indicated, for example, there undoubtedly is forum shopping, uh, and they simply said that there is no imposition on the federal court system. Well, this court has said that it is an imposition on the federal court system to be further to be forum shopping. Um, there is inconsistency, injustice, unfairness. There are different results for different litigants similarly situated. There is uncertainty in the marketplace for the marketing of, of federal securities. This is an important segment of our, of our national and international economy. Uh, and, and it undermines federal policies, the very federal policies that were at work in 1933 and 1934 when Congress enacted the 33 and 34 Act, the importance of establishing uniform enforcement in federal securities laws. As this Court specifically has held in the Wilson case, few areas of the law stand in greater need of firmly defined, easily applied rules than does the subject of statutes of limitations. Uh, Mr. Wilson, do any of the states uh, in causes of action like this apply a doctrine of latches? They, they do not apply the doctrine of latches. In, in, in lieu of a statute of limitations. Sometimes latches is applied along with it, but I mean in lieu of a statute of limitations. They, they do not. The doctrine of latches generally would be applied in cases involving equity rather than cases for the vindication of private rights of action for damages in the 10B context. Doctrines sounding like latches are applied in that the district courts and the states sometimes apply 
equitable tolling doctrines, which amount to the same things, to justify whether or not a statute of limitations would, would apply in a given case or not. In fact, it's true that in this case, everyone, everyone, the SDC, the, the, the petitioner, the respondents agree that the present system is unacceptable and should be changed. The respondents offer a modification of the present system, but even they agree that the present system should be stained. Has anyone thought to uh, get uh, legislation from Congress? Uh, Congress does have the power to pass statutes of limitation. Why, why didn't that occur to anybody? I mean, if there's as much upset about it, if everybody is in agreement, as you say, it ought to be, it ought to be a simple thing to get a statute. Well, it's, it's, as you know, Justice Scalia, it's not that simple necessarily to get a statute. Or maybe there isn't that much agreement. Many, uh, many of the commentators have agreed that congressional legislation in this area would be ben beneficial. The ABA study, a uh, special study that I referred to, specifically suggested congressional legislation. Well, Mr. Uh, Olson, has not yet in the Judicial Improvements Act passed uh, a year ago, Congress did adopt a, a general four-year statute of limitation, but apparently uh, limited it to acts enacted after the enactment of the four-year statute of limitations provision. In yes. other words, they didn't seek to apply it. Yes, that's correct, Justice. Uh, to previous enactments or causes of action. Now, why was that? I mean, why, why so limited? I think that the Congress bid off in the Judicial or Justice Improvement Act, which was passed in 1990, about as much as it felt that it could chew at that particular point. It decided that a four-year statute of limitations would apply and... For all future acts of Congress, unless they provide otherwise. For exactly. all private remedies created by future acts of Congress. Well, maybe that should be a guidepost in this case. Well, the answer to that, I think, Justice O'Connor, is found in this Court's repeated statement most recently, or perhaps not most recently, but recently in footnote one in the Patterson versus McLean case. Congress makes law by affirmative actions of both houses of Congress signed by the President, not by inaction. Um, every time, every time the Congress, let me resort, return to the, the, the one and three year statute of limitations because Congress did consider the subject of statutes of limitations for private remedies under the Securities Acts of 1933 and 1934. The 73rd Congress spent a great deal of time considering, as this court has indicated, we must I've resort. considered some. <laughs> Uh, a limitation period for those causes of action that Congress expressly created. I don't think you can say it considered what the uh, statute of limitations should be for a cause of action implied by the courts. The, the court, the Congress at that time, that's correct, Justice O'Connor, because the cause of private right of action under Section 10B is implied from Section 10B. Section 10B did not explicitly create an exp express um, cause of action or a statute of limitations. Therefore, Congress did not expressly focus it on it and enact a statute of limitations. But I submit that Congress focuses, focused on the subject about as closely and as carefully as Congress could under the circumstances. The Congress in 1933 and 1934, and there were two acts, focused expressly on a uniform national uh, legislation, a regiment regime of of governing the securities transactions in the United States. Ultimately, this, this court has said 
The quest test is what Congress, what balance would Congress have preferred? That's the standard articulated in the Wilson case and repeated in the Del Costello case and in the agency holding case. What standard would Congress have preferred? What happened in 1933 and 1934 when the 33 and 34 Securities Acts were created is that Congress expressly created five or six separate specific private rights of action. And the one thing that Congress focused on in conjunction with each of those causes of action and the desire by Congress that federal securities law be treated uniformly in the courts of the nation is that every express cause of action created by Congress in 1933 and 1934 was given an express statute of limitation. Secondly, every express statute of limitations created by Congress in 1933 and 1934 was a non-tollable outside limit, one-year, three-year statute of limitations, a maximum outside limitation of three years for the vindication of the right. Are all those statutes identical with one another? No, they're not, Justice Stevens. Each of the uh, statutes created in Section um, in the in the Securities uh, Act of 33 and 34 is somewhat different. One of them deals with uh, misrepresentations in registration statements. One of them deals with misrepresentations in prospectuses. One of them deals with um, stock listed on an exchange. But the panoply of those statutes taken together, some of which have slightly different standards, they are all they all have two or three things in common. They are all federal securities regulations that create private rights of actions. They all have an express statute of limitation and a non-tollable three-year maximum statute of limitations. And generically, Congress decided however much each of the specific limitations period would be different from one another, each of them would be subject to the same one-year, three-year statute of limitations period. So although there are differences in the remedies, there is no difference in the limitation period that Congress intended to apply. And each time this Court has considered what should — in the first place, I should step away for a moment and say, this Court has repeatedly said that whether the right whether an implied right of action should exist under a federal statute is ultimately a matter of legislative intent. And this Court has determined each time it has examined the contours of an implied right of action has looked to the Congress that created the remedy from which the courts discern a right of action. And each time this Court has considered Section 10B, Section 17 of the 33 Act, Section 14 of the 34 Act, or other aspects of federal securities regulations, the Court has uniformly turned to the 73rd Congress to determine not only whether such a right exists, but whether what the scope and limitations and contours of that right would be. The Court did it in the Blue Chip case. The Court did it in Ernst & Ernst. In the Ernst & Ernst case, uh, Piper versus Chriscraft, and on and on. The Court has repeatedly looked to that one source of information as to what Congress might have preferred. And in this case, what Congress... You weren't moved, evidently, by the fact that whenever Congress uh, wanted a cause of action, it, it adopted a statute of limitations for it. That, uh, that didn't seem to influence us. It, this, this I mean, you say every, other, every instance in that statute where Congress created a private right of action, it enacted a statute of limitations for that cause that, of action, That's right? correct. But we found that Congress really had in mind another cause of action without a statute of limitations. 
You, you, this court. I mean, you can say we looked to it, but have we really used it? Has that been our guiding, our guiding star? What the seventy-third Congress wanted? This invariably, when the court has construed the scope and contours, whether scienter is required under Section Ten B, whether preponderance of the evidence or clear and convincing standard, whether Section Ten B is limited to purchasers and sellers, the court has invariably turned to what Congress did in 1933 and 1934, the 73rd Congress, and this Court has not considered the statute of limitations before. This is the first time that that's directly come before this Court and has been directly presented, but we submit that the only source to discern, the only reliable source to discern what would Congress have intended is that very same source. It is also true that if the Court adopts a separate or a distinct methodology, which I think and I respectfully submit, is really the same as looking at legislative intent anyway. But if the Court looks at it differently and applies the analogy standard that's articulated in the agency holding versus Mallee Duff case, one draws, comes to the same conclusion. In Blue Chip, this Court examined in order to determine the scope and contours of Section 10B with respect to the purchaser and seller requirement, it, this Court looked to the express causes of action in the 33 and 34 Act, called them comparable causes of action, said that they were the appropriate vehicle and an analogy to compare them with. This Court has repeatedly said that standards of fraud under, under the common law are light years away from the right created under Section 10B, and that those comparable causes of action do provide an appropriate analogy because they are federal, they were intended to be uniform, they are intended to pri provide private redress for securities fraud, they all arise at the same time. And the other aspect of this from the standpoint of the analogy standard is that if this Court were to adopt a longer period of limitations for Section 10B, five years, for example, as the Commission suggests, that would tend to write out, nullify, or repeal the legislation that the, 30, the 73rd Congress specifically focused on and enacted uh, with respect to these other statutes. Because, as this Court has noted, the actions under Section uh, 9 of the 34 Act, Sections 11 and 12 of the 33 Act, and so forth, can be brought under Section 10B. So an artful pleader, if given a choice between a five-year statute of limitations, as the Commission urges, and the one- and three-year statute of limitations that Congress expressly adopted, would naturally plead it under Section 10B to take advantage of the five-year statute of limitations, thus resulting in a judicial nullification of the express intent of Congress. Now, I can't emphasize enough. True that the, uh, the in, in, is it the Insider Trading Act of 88 that uh, the Commission relies on? Yes, Justice White. Well, isn't, isn't it true that, that, that that's the only time that, there, that Congress has provided a statute of limitations uh, with respect to a cause of action uh, that can be involved 10B? It, in, in, the, in this sense... Isn't only, that right? Only in a very limited sense, Justice well, White. Well, anyway, it's right. It's right only in a very limited sense, in the sense well, that... Well, a, a, tell me when it isn't right. I, I'll, I will. Most of the causes of action that might be brought under 10B cannot be pleaded under the... We'll call it the insider... Well, that's true. That's true. But I still ask... Uh, you can bring a cause of action under that 88 Act that involves a violation of 10B. That's correct. And there is a then an express 
statute of limitations for it. Congress expressly decided, you're correct in stating, that Congress expressly decided for a narrow band, a very peculiar type of Section 10B violations. And it's not just 10B. That, that 1988 well, statute... I, I agree with that. I agree with that. But it does involve 10B. It does involve 10B. It why, shouldn't, why, why isn't that the closest uh, uh, statute that we should look to? Well, there are several reasons why that is not the closest. In the first place, if the ultimate test is legislative intent, the appropriate place to look, first of all, is to the language of that specific 1988 statute. What Congress said in that 1988 statute, and respondents concede on page 42 of their brief, that Congress could not have been clearer with respect to this. It did not intend that 1988 statute to apply otherwise to Section 10B or any other of the securities. So, we, we, so, so you suggest we, we have, uh, there, there are two, you suggest two statutes of limitations uh, that would be, uh, that, that would apply to different uh, 10B actions. One that uh, involves the 88 Act, uh, and for all others, there would be this other statute of limitations. Well, there are there are already the one. Is in, that right? There are not no Justice White because there are already the one and three year statute of limitations that apply to many of the facts yes. that might be pleaded under Section 10B. Right. The 1988 statute carved out a very narrow niche of people trading on inside information who may sue contemporaneous traders for a very limited remedy. That is, they may only recover the profit of the contemporaneous trader in the same type of securities. But Congress specifically said, nothing in this section shall be construed to limit or condition a right of any person to enforce a requirement of this title or the availability of any cause of action implied from a provision of this title. Thus, Congress could not have been clearer that it did not intend the 1988 legislation to apply to Section 10B actions beyond the, the narrow hybrid remedy that was created to solve a specific problem um, created by a what the Congress perceived was a created by a judicial decision. Mr. Olson, are, were, are there any other um, uh, overlaps in the 1988 uh, statute? Does, does that limitation period cover any other actions that? are governed by another federal statute of limitations? That limitations period covers any, let me put it this way, Justice Scalia, that that statute creates a right, a remedy for a violation of either Section 10B or other violation of other provisions of the 34 Act. Which already have their own statute of limitations. Which already have their own statute of limitations. So it wouldn't be at all unusual for for that 1988 statute to duplicate the one- and three-year statute that you're arguing for, it already duplicates other ones. That's, that's precisely correct. And what Congress was saying, the history of the 1988 statute is that Congress did not really focus on the statute of limitations at all. There's very little legislative history. The statute was originally, in the 1988 legislation, was taken from the insider uh, Trader Sanctions Act of 1984, which had a five-year limitation period which restricted the right of the SEC to seek certain civil penalties. That, in turn, was taken from the five-year federal criminal statute of limitation. They, what Congress did in each of these events was repeat that five-year statute of limitation. It didn't focus on the balancing process, which is what Congress clearly did, and I probably should return to this point. The one thing that Congress did in 1933 and 1934 is to conduct the kind of balancing 
that this court says is necessary to evaluate when and what are the limitations of an appropriate statute of limitations period. Several members of the Congress indicated that they had not in their lifetime been exposed to more debate, public commentary, public controversy with respect to what the statute of limitations would be. When the 1933 Act was passed and express remedies were created, the Congress enacted a two-year, ten-year statute of limitations. There was, there was a great amount of public outcry and lobbying, both from the business community and people on the other side of the issue. Congress then had considerable hearings and debates and specifically conducted that balancing. They understood that they might be cutting off the rights of some plaintiffs when they enacted a statute of limitations that was the length that they enacted in 1934. But they did so quite intentionally, and they considered the impact of the potential, which is described well by this Court uh, in just Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion for the Court in the Blue Chip case, the effect of Section 10b-5 actions might have on officers, directors, accountants, underwriters, issuers, and so forth, and the, and the international marketplace. Uh, the Court conducted that balancing process and decided uh, that, that that three-year statute of limitations was the right solution for Securities Act limitations. The one thing that I would like to mention before uh, I reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal is that the respondents have urged that the international, the um, Interstate Land Sales Act, which was amended in 1979 to have a four-year statute of limitations, ought to be the guide. Uh, we simply, I would simply like to, to reiterate what we've said in our brief, that the Interstate Land Transactions Act, Congress was not balancing the importance of secondary markets and the effect upon the economy of litigation with respect to securities. This is a statute which Congress enacted without consideration of what the appropriate statute of limitations ought to be in securities cases, and it is a non-toll, it is a tollable, arguably, uh, statute of limitations. The respondents favor that statute of limitations because they contend that there should be a tollable statute of limitations. I say that that is the strongest evidence that it's not the right statute of limitations because the one thing about which there was virtually, if any, there was no dissent in 1934, none in the Senate anyway, that the absolute three-year statute should be a bar and that there should not be in this field a tollable statute of limitations. With the Court's permission, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Olson. Mr. Allen, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue in this case is whether Section 10b and Rule 10b-5 private rights of action will continue to have proper fraud statutes of limitations, statutes of limitations which are discovery-based, or whether this Court will impose upon this anti-fraud remedy a three-year statute of repose and that is what we're talking about here, a three-year statute of repose, which will, in the words of this court, in Bailey versus Glover, in 1875, cited frequently since then, which statute of repose will, in the words of this court, become the means by which fraud can be successfully accomplished. As it, as it is where it's used elsewhere in the Federal Securities Acts. The other Federal Securities Acts are not anti-fraud remedies. At the time, the 73rd Congress enacted the 
three-year statute of repose for those other sections. The little legislative history that we have on the subject tells us that a political trade-off was made whereby a short statute of repose was put on the acts, but the proponents of that short statute of repose argued that the burden of proof on the plaintiffs would be so low they are basically strict liability causes of action with the defense of good faith available, that the burden on the plaintiffs would be so low that a short statute of limitations was justified. Even if you showed fraud, it would do you no good. You'd still be subject to the three years, wouldn't you? Under the express remedies? Yes. Yes, but those are different remedies. It's sort of like a... Uh, those are remedies. They are strict liability remedies. The fact that someone who is liable under those remedies may also have committed fraud uh, in, in many cases may be a coincidence, but fraud is not a necessary element of the burden of proof. Is there always intentional fraud in a 10b-5 violation? Uh, no, Your Honor. Most courts hold that recklessness is also sufficient, but they do not hold that negligence is sufficient or that they are strict liability causes of action and the, the instruction which is given for net recklessness as I can testify as plaintiff's lawyer is exceedingly onerous. It comes so close to fraud that it is all but fraud. Furthermore, we should not be looking at the uh, intent of the 73rd Congress in any specific way. This court has held on many occasions banker's life, blue chip stamps, Herman and McLean, Basic Inc., Aaron versus SEC. This court has always looked at Section 10B as a, as a catch-all, anti-fraud remedy, Congress's invitation to the SEC and maybe the courts in the future to fashion flexible anti-fraud remedies that would match the evolution of securities fraud. Those Anti-fraud remedies have been developed in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. In this court, in the 70s and the 80s, they are broad remedies. And to now shoehorn them back into the intent of Congress with the result of imposing a statute of repose, a three-year statute of repose, would be a mistake. It is too easy for promoters to figure out how to conceal their frauds for three years. This court has, is certainly aware of Ponzi schemes whereby promoters are able to feed back uh, proceeds from later investors to earlier investors. Uh, there are all kinds of accounting schemes whereby corporate executives and accountants can monkey with the books that, and go undiscovered for years. Uh, there, the bond investors uh, who have filed an amicus brief here present in a particularly compelling situation. They tell us that uh, securities fraud, they tell us that the average uh, municipal bond, which is unregistered and has uh, no remedy except 10b-5, the average municipal bond will not default for four and a half years. Then investors will have no idea that they've been defrauded until there has been a default. And the result of a three-year statute of repose is going to mean that the only federal the only federal remedy for securities fraud available to bondholders will not apply in more than, than half of the cases where there is fraud. Now, uh, the respondents would like to make three points. First, under your tests in Del Costello and Malley Duff, it is still the norm, it is still the rule for this court to borrow state statutes of limitations, uh, and there is nothing about the uh, the borrowing of state statutes of limitations, which has frustrated or interfered with federal policy. And 
states and the state statutes from which these statutes of limitations are taken, common law fraud and blue sky statutes of limitations, blue sky statutes are at least as analogous to 10B and Section 10B-5 as are the federal alternatives that are being proposed. No interference, just as analogous. The second point we are we want to make is that this court should reaffirm its holdings in Bailey versus Glover and Holmberg versus Armbrecht that a statute of limitations for fraud is it is particularly important that a statute of limitations for fraud be discovery based that it be tollable that is that it not start to run until the plaintiff either discovers or should have discovered that he or she has a cause of action should have discovered the exercise of reasonable care. Yes, Your Honor. The third point we want to make is that recent congressional action and inaction in the face of the evolution of Section 10B and Rule 10B-5, particularly where Congress has turned its attention to the securities laws on a number of occasions to examine them for problems, that recent inaction and and ratification by Congress is of much more significance than the intent of the 73rd Congress, an intent which this Court has repeatedly said is only of the most general nature and an intent which invited the future to fashion remedies that would deal with the evolving nature of securities fraud. That is what you said. Now, the respondents uh, make a big point of the lack of uniformity. This lack of uniformity as a problem has been only recently perceived by uh, three circuit courts. Uh, prior to that, it is hard to find examples of problems arising because of the use of statutes, borrowed state statutes, and, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because the federal courts have impose the rule of Holmberg versus Armbrecht whenever they have borrowed state statutes of limitations. That is, they have borrowed the duration from state law, but they have insisted that whatever that duration they borrowed was, that it not start until discovery. So the result is that whatever the duration has been, it has been of minor significance because plaintiffs have been allowed, because it has not started to run until plaintiffs discover their cause of action. So the result has been that plaintiffs bring their causes of action very quickly. Well, then one of, another result is that the statute of limitations, which you say is actually applied, has really no connection with any other statute of limitations at all, if it doesn't even uh, represent the state statute. I, it, I'm not following. It's, it's, well, from what you say, the, the duration is taken from the state, but the federal courts are insisting that it be discovery-based. Then that really severs the connection with state statutes, so that the federal courts are really just making it up. Is that right? No, I don't think it's right. I, I think they are borrowing the state statute. But only part of it, you say. They are... Well, they've never acknowledged that they were borrowing part of it. They have borrowed the state statute of limitations subject to the federal doctrine from this court that it not start until uh, the plaintiff discovered the cause of action. Well, but Holmbrecht against uh, 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 what's the name of the respondent? Holmberg against Armbrecht was never laid down as a formula to apply to all statutes of limitations, was it, by this court? I I think it was, yes. I think that uh, Justice Frankfurter 
made a, a fairly complete and uh, rule without exception that this court, in borrowing state statutes of limitations, would do the same thing that it also does when acting upon federal statutes of limitations, most federal statutes of limitations, and that is that they not start to run until the plaintiff discovers the cause of action. Suppose we disagree with you uh, on uh, whether the state law should apply. Uh, what's your argument uh, with respect to uh, what the statute of limitations should be in that event? All right, first of all, it should not be a three-year statute of repose. I think you've heard me say that. Second of all, um, we believe that the situation presented by the relationship by the, between the Interstate Land Sales Act and the Securities Acts is very similar to the situation that you encountered in the Mally Duff case in examining the relationship between the Clayton Act and RICO. What you had when you, in, in the relationship between the Clayton Act and RICO was that you had a subsequent statute, RICO, which you found had been very much patterned after the language and the concept of the Clayton Act. And so you said that this is be the best indication of what federal policy should be in, the in, in a statute of limitations for RICO. Now look at the Interstate Land Sales Act. In the late 60s, in 1968 or 69, Congress passed a remedy for people who are cheated by the sales through the mails and over the telephone of land in sunny climates and the like, investment properties. And what Congress did was to enact a remedy which sort of sat between a 12-2 remedy in the securities laws and a 10-B-5 remedy in the securities laws, but Congress did say that it was intending to pattern this after the securities laws. What it did 10 years later, though, is what is compelling about this analogy. Because 10 years later, it decided to make the Interstate Land Sales Act more like the Securities Act. It decided to divide out a 12-2 remedy, a strict liability type remedy, 12-2 of the 1933 Act is what I'm referring to. They decided to divide out a 12-2 remedy, and they decided to divide out a 10-B-5 remedy. And they made that 10-B-5 remedy identical, or practically identical, to Rule 10-B-5 in the Securities Act, and once again, they said, our intention here is to pattern this after the Securities Acts. Then what did they do with respect to the statute of limitations? They took a three-year statute of repose and put it on the 12-2 remedy, the 73rd Congress, and then they took a three-year from discovery, a discovery-based statute of limitations, and put it on the 10b-5 remedy for 10b-5. Look at what else Congress has done. Congress, when they enacted the residual statute of limitations in the Judicial Reform Act, Section 313, enacted a four-year statute of limitation based upon accrual. Under the, under the holdings of the federal courts, that notion of accrual will probably also turn out to be discovery-based. So Congress has, in the Interstate Land Sales Act, which we would submit to you is recent, it's 1979. It sits right in the middle of this Court's most important holdings in the securities areas. It represents Congress's intent on what it should do in a fraud case. And in the residual Judicial Reform Act enacted uh, last year, uh, this Court has a, a — the Congress enacted a statute of limitations which is discovery-based. Mr. Allen, uh, I'm sorry. Mr. Allen, do you, do you take the position 
that if we were to apply a federal statute of limitations and were to apply the one-year, three-year statute of limitations, that there could never be any equitable tolling of that three-year period? Is that the position you want to take here? Uh, I think that that is the position that this Court better figure on, because that statute has been interpreted numerous times, not numerous times, but a number of times, as it applies to the express remedies, and the courts always hold that it is a statute of repose. And petition... We held that? No, you haven't. Not yet. Mr. Allen, uh, how, how does this work? I mean, when we pick a federal statute, you've described one that you say, well, it's, it's pretty close to 10b-5. Suppose, Very close. Suppose two years from now Congress passes yet another statute that's even closer. <laughs> I suppose we, uh, we, we jump over to that one then, right? I mean, this is an ongoing uh, looking, scanning the uh, United States Code for the closest friend, right? I read your dissent in Mally Duff. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you would get to borrowing state statutes of limitations, in this case, in the first place, for the reasons that you stated and also for the reasons stated in the test. There's, there, this borrowing of state statutes has worked for 40 years. It doesn't interfere with uh, state policies. It appeals to certain people who think uniformity is very important. But uniformity at what price? And the price of this uniformity is going to be this three-year statute of repose, which is going to oust the federal courts of jurisdiction over interstate securities fraud when claims are brought by the most innocent and the most deserving of of the federal court's attention. Of course, that problem of jumping from statute to statute is, is, I suppose, an argument for Mr. Olson's position of sticking with the uh, limitations from the uh, statute that this cause of action is derived from. I mean, there's never going to be another 73rd Congress. I agree with that. But I don't... (laughs) I don't agree with Mr. Olson's position. It would be a reversal of this Court's Uh, This Court has always said that the legitimacy of Section 10b and Rule 10b-5 rests more on congressional ratification than original congressional intent. That has been the position of this Court, uh, the best statement of which is found in the Blue Chip Stamp case. Really what Blue Chip said was the oak had grown so big it was too late to saw it down. That's basically what I I read it. (laughs) Exactly. And you would be sawing it down. To put a three-year statute of repose on this action is to saw it down. Tolling in a uh, tolling in a fraud case is not only the policy of this court, which you have held on a number of occasions, it is also the policy of Congress. In 1934, Congress was not dealing with fraud statutes of limitations. Congress, when dealing with fraud statutes of limitations, has imposed tolling. You. <coughs> Now, 
I think I have nothing else to say. I'm going to yield back my time. Thank you very much. Very well, Mr. Allen. Mr. Olson, do you have rebuttal? You have three minutes. I'll be very brief. Uh, You'll have to be, yeah. One of the points that um, respondents make is, is that there must be a discovery-based statute of limitations in the securities fraud area. Uh, that is a concept which Congress debated and rejected. The debate was extensive, and Congress rejected it. Congress knew that it was cutting off rights, and it intended to cut off rights because it balanced the enforcement objectives and the remedial objectives of the 33 and 34 Act with the effect of those remedies on the marketplace. And it cut off those rights, and it intended it not to be a discovery-based limitation. Your, your, your opponent says that those were not fraud actions. Well, the problem with what my opponent says with respect to those are not being fraud actions is that Congress repeatedly characterized those actions as fraud actions. The legislative history of the 1933 and 34 Act contained the word fraud literally thousands of times in reference to the express remedies created by those statutes. Some of them have less of a standard of proof for the plaintiff. Some of them have a greater standard of proof. Section 9 of the 34 Act does require scienter. The one thing in common with respect to the statutes that Congress created, the remedies that Congress created, that the Congress called fraud statutes, some of which had scienter, some of which did not, is that they all had an express statute of limitations. They all had the same statute of limitations, and it cut off the rights at three years. The Holmberg case versus Amdrek um, dicta is just that. It's dicta by Justice Frankfurter in, in an equity case. As this Court said in American Pipe and, and, uh, and Construction versus Utah in 1974, the concept of federal tolling must be construed to be consistent and consonant with the legislative scheme and the legislative pur- purpose. In this case, the legislative scheme and the legislative purpose are clear. If there is, as this Court said in Tushross versus Reddington, uh, if there is any injustice as a result of someone's right being cut off, that, if this result, as the Court said then, sanctions injustice, that argument, when made here, is made in the wrong forum. This Court is not at liberty to legislate. The 73rd Congress conducted the legislative activities necessary to apply a statute of limitations to the the 33 and 34 Acts and the Section 10B remedy. As this Court said in Del Costello, the family resemblance between Section 10B and the other 33 and 34 Act express remedies is undeniable. There's a substantial overlap of remedies, and the balancing of interests is the same. Congress has conducted that balance of of remedies and and selected a three-year statute of limitations. Thank you, Mr. Olson. The case is submitted.